0: Do you enjoy listening to On The Ear, but wish you could earn ASHA CEUs for it? Start today. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of audio courses on demand, with an average of 19 new audio courses released each month. And here's the best part. Each episode earns you ASHA continuing ed credits. Oh, no, wait. This is the best part. As a listener of On The Ear, you can receive $20 off an annual subscription when you use code EAR21. Just head to SpeechTherapyPD.com to sign up, and use code EAR21, EAR21, for $20 off your annual subscription. You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Since the 1980s, cochlear implants have been providing meaningful sound to children and adults who are deaf and hard of hearing. As clinicians, we're often tasked with guiding patients along their hearing journey with the devices, hoping to provide the knowledge and skills to empower them to achieve success. And although we'll ask questions and do listening checks on their sound processor, we can never really hear what the device sounds like to them, let alone actually walk a mile in their shoes and feel that emotional journey they're experiencing. Today's guest is an inspirational leader in this field. She's a cochlear implant recipient herself, and she's going to help us understand that perspective even better. Donna Sorkin is the executive director of the American Cochlear Implant Alliance, a national organization devoted to expanding access to cochlear implantation for all who may benefit. She has had a long career in advocacy for people with hearing loss, At for-profit and non-for-profit entities she was previously executive director of two u.s organizations the hearing loss association of america and the alexander graham bell association for the deaf and hard of hearing Ms. sorkin served for 11 years as vice president consumer affairs at cochlear americas where she led public policy initiatives and other activities aimed at the broad life needs of cochlear implant users including insurance coverage and reimbursement habilitation for children and adults and educational needs of children with cochlear implants. She has served on federal, corporate, and university boards, including the U.S. Access Board as a presidential appointee and the National Institute on Deafness NIH Advisory Board. She previously served on the advisory board for Gallaudet University. She holds a master's in public policy from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. She is an inspiring leader, a phenomenal speaker. I've watched her awesome, I guess you'd call it like webinar on uh, audiology online on you know, providing improved care. She's just a powerhouse in this field. So we're so excited to have Donna Sorkin. Thank you so much for joining me, Donna.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Dakota. It's really a pleasure to be with you.
0: This is going to be really exciting. So I know that when I reached out to you originally, I was like, I want to talk about whatever you want to talk about. And I think one of the things you mentioned is just because I think something you're passionate about, too, is how music sounds for cochlear implant recipients. Because for so long, it's always just been the school of thought that if you get a cochlear implant, music sounds bad. That's just the way it is. But what we're learning is that doesn't actually necessarily have to be true at all for a lot of people. So I'm excited to talk about your experience and how things sound. But before we even get into that, could you tell me a little bit about your hearing journey? And I think you have one implant, right? Are you bilateral?
1: I just have one Okay. for different reasons. But I was implanted actually in 1992. So almost 30 years ago, I was a really early adopter. As a child, I had, I always say, nearly normal hearing. Uh, when I would be tested in school, and they used to test us in, in school in those days, I would be pulled out for additional testing because I had some high-frequency hearing loss. I was, at that point, normal, probably through about 4,000 hertz. So I had pretty normal childhood hearing-wise. We didn't pay any attention to People with uh, moderate hearing loss at, at the high frequencies in those days, we didn't much pay attention to kids at that point with a little bit of hearing loss at all. So I was you know, treated pretty typically. I don't think I had difficulty hearing in elementary school. I liked music. I actually played classical guitar. When I was probably started playing when I was about 9 and played quite a long time. I've always been interested in classical music and also popular music. You know, whatever my mm-hmm. friends were into, I was into. So my hearing stayed probably pretty much the same until I was in college. And then I started doing some things to help myself. I probably always sit in the front of the lecture hall. Mm -hmm. And unconsciously, I was probably lip reading. I didn't realize until much later that I was a pretty good lip reader. And then I went to college, I went to graduate school and entered the workforce. And it was at that point that I probably started having more trouble and making accommodations for myself, not wearing hearing aids at that point yet. I had always amplifiers on my phone And I had friends at work who would help me, you know, if I missed things, they would prompt me, you know, and people kind of took care of me. And my favorite accommodation was when I would be speaking to an audience, a big audience, and people would sometimes be using a mic for questions, sometimes not. I would walk into the audience and people thought I was being very interactive. I was really just making sure I could <laughs> even hear them. But it was a really popular trick that I used to use to make sure that I could take questions. So, you know, time went on. And then in my 30s, I really started to have a lot of difficulty, I started using hearing aids. I had a lot of benefit from FM
0: mm-hmm.
1: and What I didn't have that, of course, people with hearing loss have today is email and text messaging. Okay. So, you know, that was when I got my cochlear implant, it was 1992. We didn't have any of that in those days, you know, so I was really having trouble getting by at that point. It was very, very challenging to be in a high communication job without any of those technical supports that we have now for people with hearing loss that often put people with hearing loss on a level playing field with their typically hearing peers. I didn't have that. And it was very soon after the ADA was passed. And before we had in this country begun putting into effect, a lot of the supports that people with hearing loss began depending upon. I didn't have any of that. So it it really was hard for me. And Fortunately, I had a really wonderful audiologist and her name was Susan and she did everything possible for me. She, you know, brought me along. Unfortunately, I had funding to be able to get high-tech hearing aids and I was wearing the very first digitally programmable hearing aids because we thought that might help me. And at some point, Susan said, you know, I've done everything I can for you, and you're still not doing very well. I think you should explore cochlear implants. And that was a very wonderful thing she did for me. And she gave me the names of patients to talk to. She was very encouraging. And at that point, I had much greater loss in one year than the other. So I went through an evaluative process with an ENT to make sure there wasn't something else going on. That particular person gave me no support at all on cochlear implants. In fact, they told me then until I was completely deaf that I wasn't a candidate. And, of course, that wasn't true even then. And I went to my primary care doctor, and I said, find me someone else to go to. And so he did the research, and he recommended. I lived in Washington at the time, and the place you went at that time in the region was Johns Hopkins, and he told me the clinic to go to and the surgeon that I should go speak to, and um, that was John Naparco, who many of us who were in the field a long time knew. Um, He passed away in 2016, but he was just a, a wonderful physician, a very understanding man and a spectacular surgeon. So I had my surgery there very quickly after I came in for my first appointment. It was in mid-October, and my surgery was December 1st, and I was activated three weeks later. And a week later, I started in my job at what was then called uh, Self-Help for Hard-of-Hearing People, now called Hearing Loss Association of America. So those two big things, and to add to the mix, we were building a house.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was a busy time. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was a very busy time. So, But fortunately, I was lucky to derive benefit from my implant very, very quickly. And then about a year after I was implanted, the company um, whose implant I was using actually improved their uh, speech processing strategies, and I got a second sound processor, and it was that one that allowed me to use the phone. I hadn't used the phone in about five years. Wow, That was, you know, you forget if you've been a phone user, you, f- you, f- you forget how extraordinary it is to get the phone back and to have it happen pretty quickly. So that was really wonderful t- for me. And, you know, I think one of the things that also really helped me was I had, and we know this to be true now, but people who have a shorter duration of deafness and some residual hearing tend to do better with their cochlear implant. And that was definitely the case for me. And so now I've had six sound processors, one surgery that was in 1992 mm-hmm. and six sound processors. And every time I've upgraded, there has been some improvement in the way I hear or the convenience or ability to connect to Bluetooth like everybody else that connects yeah. to Bluetooth now I can now on the phone, et cetera. So I, for people who are waiting for the technology to, to improve, I always say don't wait. Most of the improvements come in the external device, and mm. that certainly is what I experienced. And so it's, it's it really is a life-changing Technology for people who are are not hearing well, you know, and and I really had very very little speech perception at that time. Now we have realized how much we can help somebody who has have more hearing, more um, ability to understand speech than I did uh, at the time. Absolutely, it's it's just an extraordinary technology, and I feel very privileged to to work in this field and to help more people have access to it. And I appreciate Dakota, you're having me on so that I can give my spiel to a larger community of people who maybe don't realize how beneficial it is when hearing aids don't work that well anymore for somebody. And I have to say, I love hearing aids. I loved my hearing aids. <laughs> they were you know, wonderful technology. And for people who don't have as significant a loss as I did, they should be wearing hearing aids, you know, and other assistive devices that work with their hearing aids. So, I'm for the whole continuum of care and whatever someone needs is what they should be using.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's a really, really fascinating journey. So, all this time, same internal. Yeah. That's so cool. That's so cool. I'd love to hear how you've been through each one of those generations of processors. And I, I bet it's crazy now to think looking at whatever your current device is compared to the first processor. I mean, just the change in size and shape. And as you're mentioning too, just sound quality and perception is just really, really cool.
1: Yeah, it is. And, and you know, and just the fact also that the way we use our devices, are more like the way you use the phone. You know, we mm-hmm. use a device and we use Bluetooth to connect to the phone. There's a picture of me that appeared in Parade Magazine in 1995. I showed it at a workshop that the FDA had yesterday, actually. And it was the size of a little box, and I wore it on my waist. And then when I used the telephone, there was a wire that connected to a little device that plugged into the phone. So it was direct connected to the phone. It wasn't coil. It wasn't Bluetooth. It was direct connected to the phone. And you know what? I didn't care. I on yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I you know, that's what I was doing. That was that picture that was in parade. If you remember this magazine that used to be in all the newspapers, it's not not really around anymore. They came to my office and took a picture of me with, with that, you know, showing off my device on the phone and how far we've come with that, that Mm -hmm. that now we, you know, we use the phone just like everybody else. And I think that's really great.
0: Yeah, that's, that's such a great reminder of how far we've come with it. But also our goals have always been the same, which is just improving communication and connecting with others. And if you're plugging directly into the phone, or you're Bluetoothing to the phone, right? It's just the goal is the same. That's great. I'm curious, because you've, you were, you know, you were with, consumer affairs so you really got some good insight and especially now with ACIA some good insight into the more like the struggles to even get the device in the first place right I'm curious if the barriers you encountered in terms of whether it's like insurance or like you mentioned finding the surgeon how those compare to what some of the barriers are today for people who are interested in pursuing a cochlear implant
1: yeah those are good questions Dakota and certainly insurance is something that I worked on a lot when I worked for Cochlear. And at that time, we didn't have the same kind of private insurance that we have now. We say typically 90% of private insurance covers Cochlear implants. So there's still some carriers that we have difficulty with. Medicare covers, the indications are more stringent under Medicare, and we're working to change that and make them look more like the FDA indications. Medicaid covers for children in all states, and they cover for adults in about 60% of the states. So that was another area that I worked on was trying to get Medicaid coverage to to look more like private coverage Mm -hmm. to ensure that Medicaid coverage for children was addressing the need for therapy. And we often struggle with Medicaid to cover the, I talked about the the fact that I've had six sound processors and Medicaid can be really tough about allowing people To upgrade. Uh, Some of them have this 10 year rule. Some of them say they won't replace it unless it's lost, stolen, or broken. And so that's, you know, that can be really a problem. Some of them don't provide sufficient numbers of batteries for a child. So we see in some states, there was one state I was working in where that was the case, and parents used to actually. Hoard batteries so that the child had them to be able to be able to hear at school, and then they would save them at, so they, you know, because they didn't have enough for them to, for the child to be on all waking hours. And so those kinds of problems, I think, are less common now. Yeah, you know, and and we worked on that really quite a lot. And you know, we still have some insurance issues. We still have. For example, the FDA indications, Um, we had a workshop yesterday with the FDA and those of us that were particularly concerned about access were talking a lot about some of the indications, mostly for children. The indications now for children are quite different than what they are for adults. And for example, for a child who's between the ages of two and 17, That child may have been born with some significant amount of hearing and been able to do well with hearing aids, but we do see progressive loss in children and a child who may have been doing well with hearing aids when they were an infant or a toddler or even a first or second grader. Their number of them become candidates for cochlear implants, and guess what? They have to miss 70% before they're a candidate when they're between the ages of two and 17. So that's a real problem with the FDA criteria right now. And if the family goes to a larger clinic that knows how to negotiate insurance, they'll be okay. Mm -hmm. But if they don't, there's so many wacky stories about things that happen with children that fall in that category. So we still have insurance issues now and Absolutely. Um, still working on trying to address those. But you know, the biggest barrier is, and this is one of the reasons I'm th- so thrilled to be on your show, Dakota, the biggest barrier is audiologists and other hearing care professionals don't necessarily refer when they should. Mm, yeah. I think a lot of it is they don't understand the criteria They don't realize how well the technology works, and they keep thinking, hmm, if you do this, you're going to lose what you have. Mm -hmm. And that isn't necessarily the case anymore. We are now able to preserve residual hearing in a way that wasn't the case when I had mine in 1992. But even if you lose your residual hearing, generally people gain and do two to three times better than they did before they had a cochlear implant. So the role of the the hearing care professional outside of CI is so important to getting people into the system and providing the kind of support that I had from Susan, who said to me, you know, I think you you could benefit from this, and from my physician who understood that hearing was part of healthcare, And that's really so key, getting people to where they need to be on that continuum.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really great point and I, I love because I feel like when we think barriers, insurance is the first thing to come to mind a lot of the time but you're you're so right that the referrals in the first place have to come from somewhere and I, I work with patients who wear cochlear implants and that's oftentimes what they say, I'm so frustrated, I waited this long, I didn't know it was going to be like this, it's so much better and a lot of them still have good relationships with the referring audiologist, you know, maybe they're bimodal and that audiologist manages their hearing aid care for the opposite ear and now that audiologist gets to see, oh, wow, you're doing really, really well with this implant. And then hopefully that's going to change attitudes as well. But you're so right. The criteria has changed and we need to be much more cognizant of how much better outcomes can be for these people, especially those who historically are just so borderline. I know that we we tend to use the, the 60-60 rule, the 60 dB uh, PTA or 60% uh, word recognition score is just a good referral criteria because... Not all of those people will qualify and that's okay because we can try again next year. Or we can try again if there's a change and they at least are familiar with the technology and they're comfortable with the idea. But we're going to catch those who really do benefit from this and there's so many of them out there. And yeah, I think that's a really great reminder. I'm glad you're here to talk about it too.
1: Yeah, I love the sixty sixty rule, Dakota, so I'm really glad that you're using that and that you mentioned it. I it's a you know, it's more understandable because I think most hearing care professionals don't really know how to do the the testing that we do for CI. But if you use something like that, that's well within your practice, you're doing that for every patient that comes in, it's close enough for you to know whether you should refer or not. And then they'll do the full set of testing at the clinic. My sister just told me that an acquaintance of hers had been referred in for a cochlear implant and it was a radiologist who who said you know um you're struggling so i think you should explore this and she went in to the clinic it was and was evaluated and she was thrilled to learn that she was a candidate so it's happening sometimes it just needs to happen all
0: the time yeah and i think that's a great segue too cuz i did want to ask you with you know this journey you've had from you know, a person with hearing loss who's just navigating it from like the inside, I guess like from the outside in to now being a professional and a leader in this world going from the inside out. I'm curious what experiences you've had with audiologists. It sounds like your first one was phenomenal in getting you, you know, the, the support you needed, but I'm sure along the way with different moves and things, you've probably met a lot of clinicians. What have been some of the traits or whether it's traits or qualities or things that really stick out to you for audiologists who either work with cochlear implants or don't that you feel like, cause we have a lot of students who listen. So like for the students out there who are interested in either working with cochlear implant patients or want to be supportive of that, what are some of the qualities and traits that you really think are important?
1: I haven't actually personally had a lot of audiologists because, because I, you know, I, 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 get someone I really like, and I, and I stay with them, just like Susan was my audiologist for a really long time until I got a cochlear implant, and I stayed in touch with her. I've sent her so many patients through the years because I knew how wonderful she was, and they're always grateful to have found her. Um, you know, I think I, I'm i about to start with my first new CI audiologist just <laughs> next month because um, I, I haven't had um, a whole bunch but I you know I think Dakota just to, to try to respond to your question, I think if if someone is really being patient centered um, and really trying to understand where that person is um, and and regardless of what the solution is, sure. I think they'll put that person in the right place. You know, I, and I think that, um, you know, just as is the case in any, um, any medical profession, you have people that really listen and really Mm -hmm. think outside of the box, you know, and people who just are following, um, the same routine. My husband had, um, hip replacement surgery a few years ago and, his first um physical therapist was just doing out of the box physical therapy and he was he was having real bad problems and it went on for a while and I said you know we need to probably try a different pt um and he got to someone who really was very analytical about what was going on. And what was going on was that they had done something to his back during the surgery. And it wasn't, what was hurting him was not his hip, it was his back. Wow. So this physical therapist was really thinking about it, listening to him, you know, and what was wrong. Um, And, you know, it it took a couple of weeks, but um, that PT fixed him, you know. And, And I think it's the same with... With any hearing health care professional, you really have to listen to the patient um, and think outside the box. Um, you know, and, and the in the case of Susan, you know, at, at one point when she suggested that we that we try um, the first programmable digital hearing aids, um, very first. I mean, this was, I don't mind mentioning because it cause this was so long ago. It was ReSound. ReSound came out with the first digital programmable hearing aids. And she said, you know, you're so hard to fit. Let's try these. And you know what? Her practice wasn't even... Using them, so oh, she okay, had to refer me to another dispensing audiologist that was, and she went with me to my first appointment with that person to make sure that everything was going smoothly. So, wow,
0: that's dedication,
1: that's and good, yeah, really patient centered, really focused on trying to do the very best thing for me, and I think that's true. You know, for whether it's audiology or whatever it is, you know, if we really if we're really thinking about the patient um, and how we might um, help them, even if it's something different than we've done before, you'll get down the right path. You know, I really think that's the case.
0: Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. I think that is really valuable insight. I love the example of your husband with the physical therapist as well. And I I hope that's going to inspire some students out there to really be thinking outside the box and focusing and listening to what their patients are telling them. That's, That's great advice.
1: Exactly.
0: I had another question for you before we get to just sort of your sound experience. Um, if there were any other professionals along the way, especially in the early stages, because I, I know in the 90s, there weren't, this wasn't a very widespread solution yet, right? It was kind of, I think in the mid 90s is when it was approved in children. And then from there, it's kind of snowballed upward into the 2000s. Were there any other professionals that you worked with in that time period? Or now that you're kind of, um, in more of a leadership role that you're seeing become more a big part of the cochlear implant experience for patients?
1: In the old days when I was implanted, we didn't, um, for adults, we, we didn't really think so much about um, therapy post-CI. You know, I, I remember asking about um, whether I should have therapy um, as an adult. And in those days, we, we didn't do it you know, I, I was told that my my life was my therapy. And and in fact, you know, I had um exposure to sound every waking moment, you know, so I, I guess that was true. Um but I think we're much more cognizant now of the fact um that adults, at least some adults, um, benefit from some short-term um oral rehabilitation. And I'm personally very interested in that. Um, I think that, for example, um, we could be using group um, therapy more with adults. Um, and we definitely should offer that to adults, at least in the short term. Um, at our upcoming conference, um, American Cochlear Implant Alliance has an annual CI conference, and we have um, a rehab connect forum that we do one day that's just focused on rehabilitation. And in the past, it's always been on children. And this time, we're actually doing Uh, half the time on uh, children and half the time on adults. Um, And we're exploring um, that topic of short-term rehab for adults. I also think adults need help just in understanding how to use their technology. And what I really um, am very appreciative of is all the companies now, uh, the the cochlear implant companies, because they know um, that their clinics are so busy and, That providing support on how to use the phone or how to use assistive listening devices is 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 not reimbursable, so they all have added that component um, to the services that they provide, and and so there are um, sometimes there are people with cochlear implants, sometimes there are audiologists, um, but they have people that are available either in person or um, they'll do. um, one-on-one sessions that are virtuals um, with people, but there's a lot more of that support now on how to use the technology and how to use the technology with other devices um, that we used to ignore. You know, so I I think that's really important. Um, um, And I saw that a lot, that people didn't really know how to use their devices. They didn't know, um, you know, they didn't know some of the other strategies that they should be using. They absolutely didn't know how to connect their devices to the phone, you know? So that would be, um, you know, that would be an issue for a lot of people. So um, that's different, Dakota, that we're looking really at um, supporting adult recipients um, more than we did before. Um, In the case of children, what's really, really changed is is the way we provide therapy to children. So in the bad old days, you know, when I first got into this field, um, when we did therapy for a child, the um, therapist would take the child into their office, and the parent would be outside in the room. It was usually the mother, and then the therapist would come out, and the mom would say, "How did he do?" You know, and and so they would get the input secondhand, you know, from the um, from the professional about sure. how it did. Um, it wasn't family centered. You know, and so that has just totally changed. We don't do therapy like that anymore. And the therapy that we do for children is really focused on the family or the guardian or whoever it is. Sometimes it's a nanny. I mean, whoever's spending time with the child and they go to therapy. And then and the therapist is really mentoring whoever that is, the family member, whoever it is, and how to help that child develop language and what they need to be doing as a family um, to, to make that all work. Now, in all fairness, in the bad old days, we didn't find children until they were two and a half years old. That was the average age when we would find a child with hearing loss because we weren't screening. And, and of course, now with newborn hearing screening, we find children when they're days old, you know, and we have rules about how quickly they're supposed to en- enter the system and fit with hearing aids and begin early intervention, so different than what it was like before. So the opportunities for children, the fact that we find them early, we fit them early, we get them into early intervention, and we focus on the family so that the parents and the family can be the child. Child's first teacher, just like they are with typically hearing children. And that's really turned everything on its head because we now can start all that early and we know where to focus our attention. And I love that that change has occurred. It's totally different than it used to be. Um, And I think that's probably the most dramatic change in the field that I have seen since I started working in this field. Um, and the most exciting thing because it's just it it just allows parents to really interact with their child in a much more natural way.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's great. I love that perspective too. And I feel like we oftentimes forget that these two supports were developing at the same time in the 90s with cochlear implants becoming available to young children and then also developing, you know, universal newborn hearing screenings by, I want to say in the mid to late 90s, those were kind of fully developed. So, those those things kind of took off together and we're just now, you know, 20 or so years out starting to see some of those children who were caught early, were eligible for cochlear implants, now they're becoming adults and taking on leadership and things like that too. So that's, that's a really great perspective that you've been able to see over its entire development. That's great. It is.
1: It's really exciting that all those things happened at the same time. The fact that we initiated newborn hearing screening and I was part of the group that worked on that. That's amazing. Yes, and and there were, if you can believe it, there were pediatricians at the time that were fighting it. Wow. Yeah. They felt that, um, I'm trying to remember what their rationale was, they felt that if you told a parent early on that their child had hearing loss or was deaf, that it might affect the way the parent interacted with their child. And that it didn't matter if it waited, you know, if you waited a a little while before you started that process. And there was a pediatrician um, in Pennsylvania, I think, that was absolutely opposed to this. Um, There were even some audiologists who felt that we didn't need to test all the children, that we should only test. The children who were high risk, so for example for me because i as I had identified hearing loss, you would test my child, but you wouldn't nece- necessarily test all children um, and and of course, that was ridiculous because most children are born to two typically hearing parents Yeah, ninety so percent <laughs> yeah
0: oh my goodness that that is wild that's so interesting you were a part of that movement too and it's a good thing you guys you guys and your evidence won out there because the lives of so many children have been drastically improved because of that early access that we've been able to achieve so that's that's great,
1: you know, and it took off really rapidly when you think about it, you know, when when we passed the newborn hearing screening bill um, and it was, I I have to identify Congressman James Walsh from upstate New York. It was, um, it was his thing, you know, and he had a staffer um, who really led the charge. And there were people from all the different hearing health organizations that worked together on the bill um, and got that passed. And it really didn't take that long before newborn hearing screening Screening really was what we did in every single state. You know, we're screening ninety-eight percent of babies, um, and that's true in, in all the states. So, you know, personally, I think that's one of the most important milestones that we were able to achieve in the, in the time that I've been working in this field. It's made such a difference for kids, regardless of their level of hearing loss. You know, it was a mild loss or profound loss, whatever it was. And now, of course, I'm working with ch- mostly children who have, you know, moderate to profound hearing loss. Um, but I care about all those kids, and I've worked at all levels throughout my career. Um, and, and obviously, it's important that we help children, regardless of their, of their level of hearing loss.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Such a cool perspective on that. Um, Okay. I have to get to this question or my students will be really mad at me because every time we start talking about cochlear implants, they always ask. And there's only a couple of videos that really describe this. But when I have someone who we're at activation day, they're very excited. Well, technically we have, we will have been talking about this for the you know, month or plus that I've been seeing them, but what's it going to sound like on activation day? And I tell every patient, it's it's never going to sound good or it might sound really weird and I'll give them, you know, it could sound like Donald Duck or a robot or beeps or, you know, I list all of the different sounds that I've had patients describe to me what their implant sounded like on activation day. So, I've got to ask you, on activation day, what did your implant sound like? And then now compared to today, is that just, is it, that's gone and it sounds normal or how would you describe day 1 and then that transition
1: yeah and that's a really common question it's something parents always ask me <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they want to know what their child's experiencing it's it's just a really common question you know i i think initially um, it was soft you know and they tipi- they typically start you out soft i didn't have the robotic mickey mouse sounds that some people describe, you know, I think it's, it's very different for different people. The phenomena that I experienced was it seemed like people were out of sync. You know, I would be looking at you talking and I would see what your lips were doing. And I was a very good lip reader and I was experiencing something else coming in. Um, So that was what I, what I had. Um, It was still sort of fuzzy, um, I had to, what I really remember is I had to really think about what it was I was hearing. Sure. You know, I had to really focus on what I was hearing, um, you know, and, and I, but I was getting so much more sound than I had been getting before because I was hearing things all along the spectrum you know from from mild to from excuse me from low frequency to high frequency i was hearing all those sounds so that was really different um you know i knew i knew right away that i was going to have much better hearing and um so so i was actually activated i was i was implanted on december 1st i was activated on december 21st I came home from Hopkins after a couple of days of reprogramming, and my mother came over. And we sat on the couch talking, and she started weeping. And I said, why are you crying? And she said, I never thought it would work. I thought it was a bunch of hype. You haven't had any need for me to correct anything since we started talking today. I haven't corrected you haven't asked me to repeat one time and she didn't believe it. And I said, well, you know, I gave you that video of this, you know, these people that had had it. She goes, I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it. <laughs> so right from the beginning, it, I had, I, it just helped me. It helped me to deliberate to more easily. You know, I was, you know, certainly I was, missing things. Certainly the quality of the sound um, was not the way I remembered it to be, Um, but it provided me me, with so much more information. My husband likes to talk about the fact that he would always have to tap me um, to alert me that he was going to start talking so that I would be looking at him when he started to talk and he he realized he didn't have to tap me anymore. He could just start talking. And I, and I would look at him, you know, it did take time. I, I, you know, I think, you know, over time my, my scores continued to improve. Um, And I think the quality of the sound continued to improve. And, and after maybe six months or so, people's voices were the way I remembered them to be. Pe- people whose voices, you know, and one of the things I I would always know when I had had a change in my hearing, because people's voices would change. You know, I, I, my husband remembers, I used to say, Ugh, your voice sounds different again. And that was, that was because my hearing had changed again. It was changing so rapidly that I, I was, noting that that was the case you know what's more typical for people is that their hearing changes slowly you know and it and it goes away and then and they get used to it you know people get used to it and they and one of the things I always hear people say is I'm doing okay you know I'm doing okay I'm doing I'm using this 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 you know they have all these accommodations that, that they're doing but personally I think that's tiring um, but it you know, I think what it sounds like in those first weeks differs for different people. And and I think that you have to just recognize that over time it's going to change. And one of the things, one of the other things I noticed was I kept comparing the sound to what I remembered sound to be. And you have to stop doing that. You have mm-hmm. to use what you have because it becomes your sound, and it's pretty good sound, you know, and the fact that I can sit at a table, and I could do this early on, um, and I because I only have one implant, I couldn't don't necessarily have directional sense. Um, but the fact that I could tell who was speaking by their voice, you know, there's 12 people around a table and I know who's talking because I recognize their voice. I can pick up the phone, and know who I'm talking to because I know their voice. Yeah. Um, and parents often say to me, so will she know my voice? Will she be able to tell an adult from a child? Will she be able to distinguish me from her father? And, you know, yes, 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 she will get all of those things. And a lot of it is how long someone does, is, how well someone does is dependent, honestly, on how long they've been deaf and how much residual hearing they have. Um, And for children, how quickly we get that implant on them, you know, and the faster we get it on them, the faster we start parent-centered therapy um, and make sure that the implant is fit properly. In general, it's not, this isn't universally the case, but in general that that's associated with better outcomes. It's good sound, go for it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and I I love that reminder. I've had one other patient describe it that way. Where he said, "When I finally realized it was never," and he's 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 bimodal, so he's always got an ear to compare things to. Right? He said, "When I finally realized, I there's no point in comparing it to this ear because it will never sound the same. It just was so much better. It was so much more helpful for me once I finally did that."
1: Yeah, it's your sound, and um, you know, it it also is the case that music. Doesn't sound the same, it doesn't. But it's still a pleasurable experience to listen to music. Um, I'm more selective about what I listen to. You know, it, for sure, a symphony orchestra doesn't sound like it used to sound. You know, it's just there's too much going on; it becomes sort of noisy. Um, but fewer instruments, um, music with a strong beat. Um, I can pick out instruments, you know, if there aren't too many, um, it helps if I know the music, you know, if it was music that I, that I had listened to before, um, absolutely. If I haven't heard a song before, I can't pick out the words in a song. I have to see them first, place them in the song. Um, and then after I've heard them a few times, um, you know, then I can place them in the song. And you know, the other thing to think about is music is subjective for everybody. My, my husband, who you met a, a little while ago helping us get the technology set up, he's tone deaf. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's painful when he sings. <laughs> this is true.
0: He's not in the room, right? He's. A- <laughs> I guess he he accepts it, he knows, yeah,
1: yeah, but but music is the point is music's subjective for everybody, sure, oh so it's it's subjective for typically hearing people and and the other thing is you can improve, you know you can do um you can do training and improve your um uh your pitch perception, um you can certainly be selective about what you listen to, um you know, and for me also. Um, when I go to a concert or or go to a play or go to something that has music, it's more than just whether the music sounds like it used to be. You know, it's part of an entire experience of being in a place with, with not now, but when we go back to going to the theater, you know, being in a place with, with other people and, you know, getting a little more dressed up than we normally are. And um, it just, be having it be part of an experience, and um, and and so when people worry about not getting music back, that they don't go for it because they won't have music, you know, it, it's just not the case. You know, it it's different. You know, it, it's it definitely is different.
0: Thank you for for that perspective too. I love how you bring it back to this community moment too. That it's it's different. There is something to appreciate, but you still get to enjoy whereas you might not have attended that concert in the first place because you're worried about your hearing now it might not sound the same, but you at least get to connect into those moments again. I think that's a really good reminder, yeah,
1: that's exactly right and you you know you also can find um, venues that work better for you um you can figure out. Where in a space um, works best for you um, and you can figure out what what music sounds the best you know so you you can you know and you don't have to be fanatical about it but i I mean I know in general what's gonna work best for me um, and that's true for theater as well I mean there's a there's a small theater in Washington it's a it's the Folger Shakespeare theater um, it's a small theater that actually is modeled after. The Globe Theater. Oh, um, cool! Cool. And, yeah, that where Shakespeare's plays um, were put on, and it's exactly that size. Um, it has wonderful acoustics, um, and I know just where I want to sit in that theater, um, oh. and it works so well. So that's that's where I like to go, um, and so I, you know, I tell people that you should just try out different um, venues and and see what. See what works best for you.
0: Sure. And I think that's that's a great transition too because you you mentioned finding the right venue, they might have supports or accessibility options at the venues and that might work really really well for you. I'm curious, especially with in 2020 when like the way that we daily communicate and have meetings and everything went more online. I'm curious so you got you got to see the transition of assistive technology from when you first had your implant. And maybe there weren't a lot of assistive options to now. I mean, when I see a patient who gets their implant, there are so many accessories and devices to help them connect with their TV or their phone or their computer or so, and you know, each other with a microphone. So I guess this question could be two things. One is, are there any really interesting insights in that transition of assistive technology that you've seen? And I guess the second part is, since the pandemic, how has accessibility and what that is changed for you personally, whether it's working on the computer or how you're doing conference calls. I know you are a very, very busy person. So what has that change looked like for you?
1: So I'm going to start from the second question is how things have changed with COVID. You know, before COVID, we did most of our calls just were conference calls. It's just a straight phone call, right? And I would take those... um, You know, maybe if it was with my board, there might be 15 people on the line. Um, People sometimes interrupt each other. You know, some people are clearer than other people. Um, So those sometimes could be pretty challenging for me. Um, And um, now who does a phone call like that anymore? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody uses virtual. Yeah. You no. Know? So when when we have, I mean, even for a short call, sometimes even if it's going to be you know ten minutes, oh, we'll do virtual, you know, and and so you get for somebody with hearing loss, you get two things: you get your face, which is lovely, you know. Now I I I have an insight in, into you, um, but then you turn you can turn the captioning on, you yeah. know, whether it's Zoom or whether it's um, Microsoft Teams or whatever it is that you're using, you can turn the captioning on. Um, and, and even beyond that, you can record it. <laughs> you know, so you have that captioning script later. And you have the whole recording la- later if you want. So honestly, in some ways, um, the transition that we've made because of COVID to using these virtual environments, Zoom and everything else, is really very beneficial, I think, for people with yeah. hearing loss. You know, and we've been able um, at A C Alliance to to have a, a speaker's ses- bureau or do we have these um, once a month we're putting on speaker sessions. And they're so easy and, pr- you know, just Free because we already have zoom technology, you know, and you can put it on and and people all over the world can watch and they're cat- we just you could either turn the the automatic captions on or what for these we're using uh, a captioner um who's uh, a, a cart captioner who then puts those captions on the screen if you want you know if you want it to be perfect that's what you do um but you can do those things, and we're all doing it so much more, and it's so accessible for for people everywhere. You know, people with hearing loss everywhere. So I think, in some ways, Dakota, um, the, the pandemic has benefited us in that way. In other ways, the mass ah, oh, mass are so awful. You know, I, I mean, I. If if I put a, a micro a remote microphone on you, I'll I'll be okay. I mean, i miss seeing your mouth, but I'll be okay. Um, but I never know whether when I'm talking to somebody and they've got a mask on, if I'm going to understand them or not. You know, and sure. I think that plenty of people with typical hearing also have problems um, with the mask, and and so I you know I think that aspect of it is is very hard for people. Um, and, you know, and we're, I'm going to a meeting in uh, next week um, and the organizer of the meeting has ordered clear mass for everybody, <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and the clear mass are, are, of course, not as effective in terms of um, ensuring that you're, you're not spreading disease around. Um, they're also not as as comfortable with the plastic so it's it's a you know it's a solution's okay um, but it does make us realize that uh, you know having this affects everybody it really it really does now the first question you asked me was more kind of how and that
0: was great but it's kind of how that assistive technology that now we we're, we're using tools we never even realized were tools before the pandemic how more things like you mentioned like using a remote microphone and just when you first got your implant back in the 90s did it come with any accessories compared to now where it comes with so many how how has that kind of assistive technology aspect of wearing an implant changed yeah
1: that's a good question so when i first got it i was you know i was working at the organization for adults and they used um loops induction loops and so my implant uh, processor uh didn't have a telecoil at that point, but there was an external um uh, device that you could buy and it <laughs> I can't say it was um, sleek <laughs> you you would plug it into your body worn processor and then it it had to, for it to work properly. it had to be upright, so I'd be sitting there you know. It, it, you're holding the microphone, you're trying to take notes, um, and then I've got this device that has to be upright. So I used to put it inside of a glass. I would take a glass and insert it. <laughs> and then it then the, the the thing would sit there inside of it so that it was in the right position to pick up the induction loop. Um, isn't that crazy? Um, so then as, as time went on, um, the CI company started putting telecoils uh, in in their set their speech processors, so it, t- it took some time, a couple of generations before that happened. Um, I did use um, FM systems um, always, for, you know, back in the day when I was using hearing aids. Um, FM systems always worked really well for me, and if I were talking to you for a period of time, I'd pin a mic on you. I you know, I just would routinely do that. Um, I think people are using FM systems less because they're tending to use Bluetooth. You know, um, I think what also has happened is, and this is primarily the ADA that's moved this along. Is a lot of the the venues. I'm I'm a theater person. I like going to the Kennedy Center and to the the Folger and different things. And um, I I want to use assistive technology when I'm in those venues, um, and Uh, I try. I mean, I have to say that the maintenance for assistive technology in those kinds of venues um, is is not reliable. You know, they don't um, have people coming and checking it. And because I hear pretty well with this, um, and I tend to sit someplace where I'm going to be able to hear. Um, And also, honestly, I tend to go to shows that are going to be captioned. Um, There's a lot more um, captioning going on. Um, The Kennedy Center will have a few caption showings um, for every one of their runs of a show. Um, So I can go to that. And I understand that um, soon the Kennedy Center is actually going to have a technology that you can sit anywhere in the theater and pick up captions uh, on your pad. And that's actually becoming um, very common, you know. So it's a closed, that's more of a closed captioning system that somebody views on their seat. I'm not as crazy about it because it means you're kind of looking down rather than looking at the stage um, versus what they have at the Kennedy Center is a, when they're doing one of their open Caption showings. Um, they have um, a box on the stage, and you sit on one one area of the in the audience, um, and then you're looking at the stage. And if you want to see the captions, you sort of look down, and you can see them without looking down. All sure, the sure. Um, I think it's it's. I think the assistive technology has gotten more prevalent. Um, I think we're still. Probably not where they are in Europe, where there are loops everywhere. There, in, in Europe, you sometimes you go into a taxi cab, and it's um, it has an induction loop in the in the taxi cab. A train station will have one. Um, you know, if you're buying a ticket to go somewhere, um, not everywhere, but in a lot of places, the train stations will have a, an induction loop set up. Um, so I. You know I think it's advanced. Um, there are some people that don't like Bluetooth um, i i I'm not one of them. I love Bluetooth I, and I think the the sound quality for me is more reliable um, mm-hmm. than than the phone uh, than than my um, you know my landline phone where I have to rely upon um, a telecoil which which for me not everybody feels this way. I mean, it's this is very personal, and I really tell people you you have to find out what works best for you. For me, the telecoil does not work as well as Bluetooth. There, you have it. I've said <laughs> but some people don't don't agree with me, and sure. that's fine. You have to you have to figure out what 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 works for you.
0: That's a really great perspective, and it's something where I'm still you know relatively new to the field, and so I've. Only been immersed really in the Bluetooth generation of assistive technology, but I'm very familiar with loop systems and T coils, and I'm familiar with areas around me. I know when oh, there's a a looped area, but it seems like I have you know some patients who their loop they do so well with it, and so it's something we have to talk about every time. And I I don't think it's going away anytime soon because it is that physical concrete option versus Bluetooth, which can you know if the Technology that's emitting it fails, then it fails. So I think there's definitely pros and cons to each, and I think it's an interesting perspective you've got.
1: That's true, and I'm really talking about the phone when I say that. Yeah, because you're not going to typically find Bluetooth in a theater. Um, the reality is, though, to find an induction loop in a theater in this country is is highly unusual. You know, there's there are theaters in New York on Broadway that have it because the advocates want You know, after the theaters to put them in, Um, I've used them in theaters in Europe. Um, If they're put in well and they're monitored, like your patients tell you, they're fantastic. Yeah. You know, and if if you go to some of the consumer meetings um, and they have top-notch people that are putting uh, the loop systems in, they work beautifully. Um, But unfortunately, it's not the case everywhere. Yeah, it's just, it's it's just variable. Yeah.
0: It's still so interesting to see how that's changed over time and just how much more it's probably going to continue to change in the future. And you just have such a great perspective on that. And I can't believe how fast it's gone by, but we're actually just about out of our time. If you've got any things from ACIA you want to promote or let people know about, I know you guys have your topic Tuesdays usually, let us know about that. Or if people have any questions where they can find you, it's been such a joy to talk to you.
1: Thank you so much. Of course, come to our website. We have um, a very complete website that's designed for people that are both in and outside of the field. So um, people who are audiologists and are wondering, for example, if there's if they have a patient that um, should be considered, you know, or if they have a patient that they want to give information to, we have um, we have information at all levels. So it's um, ACIalliance.org um, is our um, is our website, and then we actually have Facebook and Twitter, um, and we're pretty pretty active on social, and also LinkedIn. Um, Dakota, you mentioned that we have these Tuesday talks. Um, and they're once a month. Um, the next one coming up is on the 15th of February. Um, and it's being given by just an amazing audiologist in the field, Terry Swollen. Um, and she's going to talk about, um, uh, it's a, it's a, it's for parents. Um, but it's also for anybody, any professional that wants to understand what's happening in a mapping session. She's going to explain what's happening in a mapping session uh, for parents. And then we have one uh, in April uh, that Meredith Holcomb, um, another uh, wonderful audiologist in the field from University of Miami, she's going to do a similar talk, but for adults. So we're we're having those that are, are really designed not for people who work in CI, but people who either are outside of CI or for parents and consumers. And then we're doing one. Um, there's a new film that's coming out called Rally Caps um, that I'm giving a plug for because I just love the the film. Um, and it's, um, it's a book that's been around. Um, it's written by a mom of um, an adult um, man who has a cochlear implant. So she's, she, she really knows CI. Um, and it's a really, it's a baseball story and it's a, it's a really great story um and so she's coming out with that on opening day of baseball season um and we love it because she, on her website she's got um information that she um has placed up there from our website with links to our site yeah. um and we hope to be helping her with some of the um places where she's going um various baseball games she's going to show up with Um, her information, and we'll have people there and just share information about hearing loss and generally and cochlear implants more specifically. So watch out for those and join us at um, one of the baseball games that we'll um, be at. And I can't stop by uh, not talking about our conference. So if any of your listeners out there, um, students or people who are working in the field, um, we do have our cochlear implant conference coming up May 18th through the 21st in Washington DC and all the information for that is um, is on the site it's going to be a really great uh, conference it's in person our first in-person conference in three years um, yeah we'll, yeah we'll have safe, safety precautions um, in in effect um, so we hope everybody will want to come for a um, a safe and wonderful conference experience. And if you come, I'll be sure to say, uh, be sure to come and say, you listen to me on Dakotas. <laughs> 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 I'd be happy to meet you.
0: Yeah, well, thank you again for joining me. You guys have so many great things going on with uh, ACI Alliance and we're so excited to have you talk about your journey with your cochlear implant. Thank you so much for taking the time. We look forward to talking with you again in the future.
1: Wonderful, thanks so much Dakota, bye-bye.
0: And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R.